This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. So this week we're going to talk about the slump in the oil price, whether individual investors are getting a raw deal when companies are raising cash, how to spread your money around in the current crisis, and the benefits of multi-asset funds when seeking this portfolio diversification. So first let's talk about markets, and in particular that plummeting oil price. So we're now in territory where the oil price has fallen to negative, which effectively means that oil producers are paying people to take it away, which feels like a very apocalyptic type world. But what does that actually mean for markets, Dan? Well, investors obviously, a bit. well, first of all, they're very, everyone's confused about what it really means. So we didn't have huge sell-off in stocks and shares like people might expect. It was more of people trying to get their heads around what's going on. Um, so really, the, the negative oil price um, is actually specifically linked to a contract for oil in America that was delivered in May. So it, it was so specific to one certain type of contract, not all oil prices around the world. So the reason it was trading negative is that people that owned the oil had to take delivery of it, despite not actually wanting it, because demand is so weak at the moment due to coronavirus. So they were offering for brothers to take it off their hands, to pay them to take it off their hands. But there's such big storage problems in the US where this oil is, um, that people didn't really know what to do. I, I mean, I saw people joking about this on social media saying like, oh, I've got a swimming pool, I've got a garage. What do I need to, to fill it up if you're going to pay me to take some oil? <laughs> um, uh, but I'm not sure whether that actually led to anyone sort of taking taking ownership of it. So, <laughs> I've been sizing up my back garden and working out how much I could fit in there. <laughs> <laughs> but really, so what, what's happening? Because so in America, that they follow this benchmark called um, WTI, kind of like for the, for Europe, they look at Brent crude prices. So, so Brent crude was not going to negative price like we saw with WTI. Um, however, it has halved in price since the start of April. So initially, think what investors should focus on is like is more what's happening with Brent crude. So why is that the, sort of the mainstream oil price benchmark falling by so much? And I think it's it shows that people are worried about the economy, the global economy, and what might when we're going to get a global recession, really. So um, you've had the demand side shock because coronavirus has essentially led to um, people being indoors. Uh, lots of businesses aren't operating as usual. Significant number of factories aren't uh, running. You've had huge um, oil consumers like uh, aircraft industry, you know, the, well, the airlines are, are sort of operating on very, very small, limited capacity, if at all. So on the supply side, you've had Russia and Saudi Arabia having a very ill-timed price war. So Russia has now sorted out an agreement, but it's kind of a bit too late. So there's lots of stuff going on in the oil market that has led to this very gloomy situation. So the big question is, is it just a short-term issue or is it um, pointing to some big problems ahead? And we've already seen the impact that it's been having on inflation. So we've got new inflation figures out today and we saw another drop in inflation. So it's fallen to 1.5% for March. Now, obviously, that doesn't reflect the current drop in oil price that's happened over the past couple of weeks, but it reflects the more kind of general fall in oil prices down um, as the year's gone on. And so that has dragged down inflation and that means that it's fallen. So that was one of the big factors um, causing inflation to fall. Yeah, so I think 
you know, people people tend to get excited when there's low, low oil price. Um, they think, okay, I'm going to go and load up my car with petrol because it's going to be really cheap. But of course, no one's driving, are they, at the moment? So, I mean, Laura, I don't know if you have you seen what's happening with petrol prices at the moment. Are they are they falling? I wouldn't imagine they're not they're not plummeting as far as people might think. Yeah, so they've fallen a bit, but um, based on so the AA and RAC and kind of that other motoring organisations like that um, look at petrol prices and track them over time. And essentially, petrol prices have fallen, but they've not fallen by as much as the oil price has fallen. So lots of people, I think, will might be getting excited hearing about negative oil prices and thinking that they can go to the petrol forecourt and be paid to fill up their tank. Um, but that we're pretty far from that actually happening. So there's a couple of factors in that. One is that so much of what you pay at the pump for your petrol is tax and VAT and basically other forms of tax. Um, so the oil price itself only affects a small proportion of that actual price that you pay at pump. But the other factor is, like you said, n- no one's really driving and, and lots of particularly commercial driving, but generally people just going around in their car, um, no one's really doing it. And so a lot of petrol stations are saying that they need to uh, keep prices a bit higher than they than they might otherwise have done to compensate for that lack of demand. Otherwise, they're saying petrol stations and forecourts are going to have to close entirely. It's a bit like the, the banking industry, isn't it? When when interest rates fall, you you don't see people rushing to cut cut rates <laughs> cut loan um, rates well they yeah. cut savings rates pretty quickly but not loan and mortgage rates so quickly yeah yeah so, so i mean so with oil oil prices um it's, it's a very difficult situation we kind of you, you do want to see demand picking up um for to have some confidence that oil prices are going to be to going back up but i think what what you perhaps should expect that in um sort of mid to late may uh you might have a repeat of the situation where the WTI, US sort of uh, form of oil um, pricing, might crash again because they they still have these storage problems. Um, so the WTI is is storing on onshore with Brent. You actually um, there's lots of oil that's stored at sea. Actually, what's happening there is the cost of renting an oil super tanker has skyrocketed. I think companies used to sort of pay around $20,000 a day for these super tankers to store stuff. Well, that cost has now shot up to between two hundred dollars and $300,000 a day, which goes oh, to wow. show... That's yeah, a massive difference. It is. It's, demand for oil storage is huge. So the, the, the big companies are still producing stuff. Um, I think that they've got an eye on the longer term and thinking, well, at some point these oil prices will, will, will bounce straight back this is a short-term issue but um i think as at the point of when we're recording this podcast um the market is still trying to get its head around what you know where next for, for oil prices so we've not has there been a big uh, market reaction specifically to the big oil giants that are out there or have we not really seen that filter through so much yet well yeah you've seen i mean so on the london market you've got Royal Dutch Shell and BP, that their share prices have been weak, but not spectacularly weak. Um, so uh, I think it's the ones that really fall on the most are, um, or the, the oil producers are heavily indebted because I think the market's worried they're, they're just not going to come out the other side. So um, you tend to find that the really big companies like Shell and BP, and, and, and particularly if you look in the commodity space, look at the mining space as well, like uh, Rio Tinto and BHP, it's the it's the giant companies who seem to be able to cope 
the best in a lower pricing scenario. Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's tricky, but I, I don't think you know. For if you're investing in Shell, um, which a lot of people do because they they like the the dividend that is historically been paying, it's been a very high um, high yielding stock. Um, you would have probably seen some some weakness, but I think. I think it's not not quite as dramatic as, as perhaps the headlines are suggesting um, when you're suddenly seeing sort of you turning on the evening news and it's sort of talking about negative oil prices. So. And so the other big focus in markets this week has been on um, how companies are raising money in the stock market. So we talked on the podcast a few weeks ago about companies that would need to go out there and raise additional funding to get them through this current crisis, whether that's for kind of future expansion or just to keep going right now. Um, and so we've seen that. But James, uh, a listener, wrote in and he, uh, he was asking about the impact on individual investors. So do you want to explain a bit of the background here, Dan? Yeah, sure. So the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has taken some measures that lets companies raise more capital quickly. They're allowed to issue up to 20% of their current share capital without having to give existing shareholders first refusal. Essentially, what this thing is, is companies who are really worried about um, their finances near term for you know, a temporary um, hit to their earnings because of coronavirus. It lets them go and tap investors for more money to help shore up their finances. So you've seen just under four billion pounds raised since the start of March from 80 companies on the London Stock Exchange. Um, so the downside of issuing all these new shares in exchange for cash is that you're essentially creating a bigger pool for for future earnings and therefore dividends to be shared out. So you do diluting existing investors. Um, so on one hand, it's good that companies are raising more money and it puts them in a financially better place to get through the crisis. But on the downside, if you're a retail investor, so just the general public, you, you, nearly all of these fundraisings, you haven't been able to buy any of these new shares that nearly all of them also are being issued below market price. So it's it's created this sort of divide between um, institutional investors, which are like banks and pension funds. They've been given a chance to buy cheap shares, essentially. Um, and what we found is that quite a lot of these companies, once they've issued these new shares or, or, or agreed they're going to have a certain amount of money coming in, well, their share prices have rocketed because the market's excited and saying, okay, you're in a financially better place. So retail shareholders have missed out on all this opportunity to buy cheap shares and sort of the potential bounce that you've seen in some of the stock. And so you're so, now having... Sorry. So why wouldn't... Sorry to interrupt. Why wouldn't um, these companies issue them to individual shareholders as well? Is it just because it's easier and, and quicker to just go out to people that are going to buy um, potentially... I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds worth of shares in one go rather than the individual person on the street who might put a thousand pounds in, for example. Yeah. So historically, companies have tended to avoid dealing with retail investors in these sort of situations because they find it easier for their broker to call up probably, say, 20, 30 different um, people um, and that's a lot less paperwork to deal with than having to deal with, say, thousands of individual investors. Um, so you see it when companies join the stock market. You rarely see the opportunities for retail investors to take part in um, these offerings. 
And it's the same principle now. It's they, they want the money really quickly. They don't want to have to deal with lots of administration. So um, they're cutting them out. But there is a sort of an argument suggests that there is technology that does exist that lets you uh, retail investors get involved um, very easily and to be able to do things in a matter of hours. So there's actually a campaign underway that gives um, to give retail investors better access. And that's been signed by bosses of companies such as Fidelity, Standard Life, and even our own AJ Bell as well. Uh, so you know, hopefully this should um, raise awareness and sort of put some pressure on companies to, to give retail investors a chance, you know, a, a, fair, a fair share of their opportunity to, to take part in these fundraisings. Is there no other way around it? So, for example, the new shares that they're issuing, couldn't they issue them under different terms, for example, than existing shares so that existing shareholders don't miss out as much? So maybe they're not entitled to as much dividends or um, they don't have maybe the same voting rights or I don't know. Is there not a way to level the playing field there as well? Well, in the US, you do find situations where you have different classes of shares issued, particularly for for having different voting rights and stuff like that. But I, I just think it's probably thinking it's just too complicated to do. Um, you, you know, these these uh, you imagine someone in a boardroom just saying like, "We're really worried about our finances. Um, let's get the money as soon as possible." Having to work out different share issues, um, stuff like that, it's just probably not the headache that they want at the moment. Um, but you know, I think it's I think it's there's some, there's more to it than perhaps the sort of the issues that we've uh, discussed so far. Now, James, who's the the, the listener who who wrote to us, was asking about it. He he was raising the question about a certain company, and he wrote to them and said, um, "I kind of worked out how much money you've got and what's your cash burn, and I think you've got several months before you really are uh, starting to worry." Couldn't you have spent a bit more time um, to sort out a wider fundraise and not restrict it to institutions? So um, this is the raises a question: Are companies issuing new shares for um, a genuine reason that they need cash now, or are some jumping on the bandwagon and seeing it as an opportunity to grab money while everyone's in this sort of mood of fundraising, um, but they don't really need it? Mm, interesting. You're being very cynical. No, I don't think so. I think it, I think well, so. I've I've looked at this quite closely in terms of what companies are doing. Um, so I think you you had an initial round of some quite um, sort of very established businesses that have done very well and and sort of got into a bit of trouble because they're essentially their business is sort of ground to a halt temporarily. Um, so we've had SSP. So that if you go to a train station and you see the the people selling food, um, they're nearly all owned by SSP or operated under a franchise. Um, it, it got a new um, debt facility with the consortium banks, just over £100 million. But a condition of it getting this debt facility that it had to go out and raise new cash via issuing new shares as well. And I, and I reckon that ASOS was in the same situation. Um, it, it raised £247 million, which it reckoned was give it enough finance to sort of get through um, without any improvement to current trading for, for at least 18 months. But it sort of kind of looks like that in order to get the banks to extend its debt facilities and loosen its covenants, that it had to go out and get some more money. So you can see um, for certain companies, there is a genuine reason for them to go and get more cash. But one of this uh, fund manager called Mark Barnett, 
um, wrote to 200 companies saying he wouldn't support any cash calls unless the company actually had a strong rationale for, for needing the money because he reckoned they should use all the, um, what is one of the schemes that the government's offering as support to businesses instead. So, um, you know, coming at it from a completely different angle of um, everyone else at the moment. That's interesting, though, isn't it? The kind of how companies are balancing it and whether they are just capitalising on on maybe easy money raising at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a mindset amongst um, certainly on institutional investors that they're prepared to look at opportunities now and make quick decisions and say yes, we'll back this or we won't back that. So, um, if you look at all the fundraisings that have happened so far, nearly all of them have been for strengthening the balance sheet but there have been some that have been doing it for working capital and potential acquisitions so um, if you look at the recruitment company Hayes um, it's kind of been seeing some more opportunities as coronavirus has sort of been disrupting businesses and um, you can imagine that you get companies that are in the middle of projects and they just get need to get things finished um, and so the, the idea that you might need to call upon the recruitment company to find um, staff to be able to keep doing stuff you, you can make sense so um, with recruitment companies, they have to they, they find people jobs, but they tend to have to pay their wages before their client pays them that money back. So you can see that it would make sense for working capital in that situation. Um, auto traders come out and said that it wanted to shore up its balance sheet, but also it wanted to be in a brilliant position once the crisis has ended, that it can jump on any opportunities, which I take to mean acquisitions, um, once things get back to normal. And even Hotel Chocolat, that's, that's using new money to finance expansion of its production facilities and open some more stores in Japan. So it's clearly not just simply just um, making sure you've got a couple of quid um, in your pocket in case things get worse. You know, there are some sort of strategic um, decisions going on as well. Um, so talking of listeners getting in touch, we've had another question come in from Julie, who's been asking about diversification in an investment portfolio at the moment um, in particular sort of she was asking um, should she be looking at bonds in the current climate so I mean it's a it's, it's a great question and we do love when listeners get in touch with this way so please keep keep sending all your questions in so so Laura on the subject of diversification what do you think I think the answer is a definite yes isn't it <laughs> yeah, but I think um, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people will have will have looked at their portfolios in the recent market falls, and for some people, um, relatively newcomer investors, it might be the first time they've experienced a, a big market fall like this, and they it might have woken them up to the fact that they should have spread their money around a bit more. Maybe not had so much in exciting different equity markets, and had a bit more in what's sometimes perceived as slightly more boring asset classes. So things like um, bonds or, or gold or even cash or things like infrastructure, which are a bit more um, esoteric. But it, I think the, the current market has shown the benefit of, of spreading your assets around, which is one of the main things we always talk about when you're starting out investing and when you're setting up your portfolio. And even when you're assessing it each year is making sure that you've got a good spread, not only across different asset classes, but different countries, um, and that you don't have too much in one area or in one fund in particular. Um, and I think if you look at the performance data so far this year, so I looked at funds specifically, um, because that gives quite a good barometer of, of where people have made money and lost money. And if you look at that, a lot of the biggest 
losing funds are focused in some quite similar areas. So common themes among them are oil, which we've obviously just been talking about, a lot of um, Latin America or some areas of emerging market funds, um, because those economies are much more exposed to the oil price. Um, and a couple of what are called value-focused UK funds. So these are the, the funds that kind of invest in companies where they're set to make a resurgence or their share price has fallen quite a bit, but it's poised to make a comeback. Um, and obviously those kind of slightly embattled companies got hit hardest uh, in the sell-off. But then if you look at the flip side of that, of, of what um, which funds have done well, this I thought was quite a startling figure. So of more than 4,000 funds in the market that are available to investors um, on the particular screening tool that I use, only 340 have delivered more than 0% so far this year. Wow. I mean, this is it, isn't it? Because I think people, when they talk about diversification, you think, okay, if you have lots of different asset classes, the assumption that they won't, they won't move up and down at the same time. But I think we've just been through a period where it's an exception to the rule isn't it they've had nearly everything has been hit um and you can understand why funds have had it you know yeah a hard time exactly so of the ones so of that kind of 340 that have managed to make a profit so far this year a lot of them are bond funds which is what um julia the listener that wrote in spoke about um so bond markets are one area um particularly long dated which means um bonds that have a long time until maturity, until they mature. Um, those funds have done particularly well. But then also there's a bit more of a sprinkling of other things in there. So quite a lot of um, stock market funds that are focused on technology or on biotech for kind of obvious reasons at the moment. Um, some gold funds have done particularly well. So it shows that having exposure to, and this is obviously a very short snapshot of the kind of, what are we now, almost four months into the year, Um a short snapshot of, of what's happened in that time. But because it's been such a market crisis period, it's a really good example of how spreading your money across all of these different asset classes could have meant that your portfolio not necessarily would have risen, but would have fallen by less than if you'd had all of your money in UK equities, for example, or in emerging markets. And obviously, for people that don't want to make these decisions about what what money should be allocated to which market. Um, they can choose what's called a multi-asset fund, which spreads the money across lots of different markets. And we actually spoke to um, John Hustleby, who works for Lion Trust, and he's worked in multi-asset investing his entire career. Um, and we spoke to him about the benefit of these funds, but also kind of multi-asset investing generally. So we'll, we'll listen to that now. So I'm here with John Hustleby, an investment manager at Lion Trust, who specialises in multi-asset investing. So John, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Um, so before we kick off our chat, I thought it's probably worth explaining to our listeners what exactly multi-asset investing is. Well, I think the clue is in the name, multi-asset. And uh, what we mean by multi-asset is more than one asset class to me. So equities and the broad range that you have there, not only UK equities, but global equities as well across other markets. And then you're mixing them in with bonds and then some of the alternative asset classes, the non-traditional asset classes. That could be property, uh, infrastructure, uh, commodities, the sort of absolute return funds. The idea being uh, to try and grasp you know, diversification, uh, diversification being 
that uh, not all asset classes can act and behave in the same direction, therefore trying to sort of get a return, but also lower the risk at the same time. So I know you run portfolios in your job, but just in general, in terms of the broader multi-asset world, um, if our listeners were to go and buy um, a single multi-asset fund, do you think that would give them enough diversification in their portfolio or they'd need to own other things as well? Well, I think that very much depends on what multi-asset fund they are buying Mm. because there are different types out there. So the different types really rely upon really what your investment objective is. And if you think about an investment objective, there'll be three parts to it. There'll be the return part. There'll be the risk how much you willing your uh, risk you're willing to take, and then the time part as well. So you combine those three t- things together to really define your investment objective. Now within that, there are different multi-asset funds. So there are funds that do actually focus upon time. In other words, if you've got a, a 10, 20 year focus, they will build a portfolio which is uh, perhaps quite adventurous today, but in 20 years time on some sort of escalator type approach, they'll end up at a cautious portfolio. You've got funds which are based upon return that could be a growth return, it could be like an inflation plus return, or it could be an income type thing. Or like what we do is uh, um, risk and you can base upon risk. So um, uh, investors' appetite for risk, from low risk to higher risk. So um, depending on that will we'll depend upon the choice of uh, multi-asset fund. But typically speaking, the answer to your question is no. I think uh, it's a component part of a portfolio rather than just you know uh, one solution. Okay. So in, in your job, you spend a lot of time looking at funds and working out which fund managers are worth investing in. How do you actually decide who's good and who's bad? Well, I think the first thing and, uh, uh, you know, what we're looking for is we're not looking for consistency of performance. We just don't think that, particularly in the short term, I suppose about a defined short term, which is, you know, more like the three to five year period. We just don't think that consistency of performance is there. So what we look for is consistency of style and approach and the classic styles being a growth manager or a value manager. So in recent years, um, you know, growth managers have done particularly well, particularly those holding a lot of tech-type stocks. Um, but not only is it growth and value that you that we look at, but also market capitalization. So that means managers that focus perhaps on larger, uh, larger stocks, you know, blue chips, mid-cap, small caps, and uh, how some even blend them together as well to have a sort of more of an all-round type type approach. And do you think it's fund managers are relying a lot on um, skill or this is actually just luck that they're get, they, you know, if they're doing well for a short period of time or something? Yeah, I think that uh, certainly in, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years in terms of uh, looking at fund managers. And I certainly th- believe that in the short term, and that once again, that three-year period in particular, a three-year period that a lot of people look, by the way, uh, for their uh, performance as a as a gauge to what fund to buy. I do believe that in most circumstances, it's more due to luck than skill. I think it's really quite difficult without you know the tools uh, of access to managers on a regular basis to identify the difference between skill and luck in the short term. And I think a lot of that luck is due 
due to external factors, some of which I've already talked about, which is this investment style, growth versus value, or large cap, mid cap, small cap investing, because styles rotate, uh, and they rotate not only year in, year out, but also sometimes week in, week out. Last September 2019, uh, there was a period for one week, one week only, uh, value managers outperformed. It was quite a spike uh, in in that uh, seeing value managers outperform and the, the growth managers uh, underperformed in, in that respect. So it's due more to external factors, the market noise that we have, geopolitical risk. It can even be stock and sector risk as well. So I presume then, so if, if I was looking um, to consider some funds, I'm looking at the fact sheet, which has got very different time periods. Are you sort of suggesting that I should be looking at five, not even five, or sort of seven, ten-year data then to get a better sort yeah. of picture? I think you've got to, you know, on the fact sheet, classically, it will give you last month's performance, three months, year to date. You know, they will start extending the uh, performance period from short term to long term. Hmm. Well, most professional fund buyers, people doing my role, will actually read it the other way around. They'll start on the right-hand side and read backwards. <laughs> we'll start at the 10-year number and look at that number. With that 10-year number, one of the first questions you look at, you say, what well, is it the same management or same management team that's been running that uh, fund for the whole 10 years? And then what you're trying to do is really dig into the investment style and approach and not only look at what they're doing, but try and find a custom peer group of others which are doing something similar and i do say similar and then you can compare like with like in the short term that's the only way you're going to be able to compare performance in the short term is like for like yeah so i, I presume people should be looking at how the market's performed as well not simply just looking at what the fund has done just to get a sense of if they've outperformed or or, or simply just ridden whatever the market is doing you know, yeah exactly. i think i think in terms of short-term market performance um, you know, uh, I think the best way to capture short-term market performance is actually through a, a passive vehicle. Uh, but they are going to give you the index uh, less, uh, obviously, their costs. The thing about that, though, is the longer you go out, you know, uh, out to seven, ten years, they are going to underperform. You know, um, they're going to lose your money versus that index. But if you're worried about a short-term performance in markets, then a passive fund will do that for you, provided, you know, it is a suitable passive fund. In other words, it's tracking what you want it to track and it's doing that efficiently. So what? how do you know to stick with a manager if they're underperforming? Um, a lot. I've sort of seen a lot of managers sort of saying that you know you just stick with me because my style's not in fashion at the moment. So, um, but at some point you, know, you have to sort of turn around and say, well, I've been waiting for three, five more years or something. Yeah. When are you going to show me the what you originally promised you would do? Yeah. So there's a lot of faith and trust that goes <laughs> on here, isn't there, Dan? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you take this route of uh, diversification, so you take this route of believing in consistency of style and approach then you can look to blend funds together. So, you know, provided those managers are skillful at what they do, and you can assess that, as I said, I believe over the long term, not the short term. If you have two managers who are running money, let's say in the classic value and the classic growth approach, if you put those two managers together, typically that's what, that's what we do do, blend them 50-50, uh, and then from a period of time, rebalance them. You know, you can take some profit and then obviously uh, obviously recycle that into uh, an underperforming, as, uh, underperforming style. 
I think that's the best way to go about that, get the, the diversification. You could even tilt that as well. In other words, you know, value is underperformed now for a period of time, three years or so. Um, and our tilt is 55% in value, 45% in growth. So I don't think that uh, in terms of managers, the best thing to do is diversify the managers together, make sure you have those classic different styles and get that all the benefits of diversification from that. Yeah. So if, if, if I was to put money into a multi-asset fund, obviously I'm, I, I would be gaining access to stocks and shares and bonds and you know, possibly property, but... Would if if it was a single manager running all of that, would you be a bit cautious? Because surely you need to be an expert in something, and you can't surely come be an expert in picking the best bonds, the best stocks, can you? Would you sort of, if you were looking at a fund, would you look for one that has a big team? And they're obviously sort of spreading that expertise around. Yeah, I mean, once again, this is highly dependent upon the uh, the multi asset fund that you choose and. They're not all equal in that respect. So you can, as what you're describing, is taking on single manager risk. Single manager may be an individual, but it could be a team behind them as well, as you've just described. Or perhaps if that is too much, in other words, you do want more diversification, then you can take on a multi-asset approach, but which is invested on a multi-manager basis. In other words, it's invested right across the market and it's looking essentially for the best of the best in each of the asset classes it invests in, and furthermore, each of the geographical asset classes it invests in. So in equities, the US, Japan, Europe, you know, Asian emerging markets, and not forgetting the UK as well, looking for the best. But once again, I would say that, you know, if it's taking that multi-manager approach, then look for diversification. Make sure that, you know, that then all the eggs are not in one basket. They're not just backing growth. You know, there's a blend in there. And it, do you, do some multi-asset funds sort of go to the extremes in terms of the alternatives that they have in their portfolio? So would I see something like fine wine or, or fast cars or anything like that in there? Or is it, they, there is a sort of a limit to how far they can go. Yeah, I, I, well, you know, I think I need the budget to go off and research fine wine. <laughs> it sounds like a great idea, Deb. We should, we should team up. No, I, you know, once again, you don't tend to see those types of extremes fine wine art uh car vintage cars you know coins you know the whole lot you you don't tend to see that because you know these things are are fairly illiquid type asset classes um and trying to get you know a size of exposure to that as well i mean you know some of these multi-asset funds are you know run into their billions and uh Therefore, to try and get exposure to some of these asset classes, you know, is rather limited. And if you do get exposure, what about the diversification in that as well? You know, you might be able to buy a couple of pieces of art, but, uh, but uh, you know, is that real diversification? So, no, you don't tend to see that sort of thing. That tends to be sort of outside of portfolios. You quite often see retail investors talk about, yes, I, I'm, I know I've got to put money into the markets, but what they don't tend to talk about is the is putting it into set amounts of pots or this is the asset allocation so only having a certain amount in bonds say and a certain amount in shares i guess with multi-asset funds or multi-asset portfolios you you're you're getting the benefit of someone else doing this asset allocation for you but that would only work wouldn't it if you only had multi-asset funds in your portfolio because if you should start to blend that with say equity income funds and yeah. stuff you, you might not get it but you think that that, that that's a it's a benefit, obviously, 
uh, look, the key to this is, is is three things. Is number one is suitability. Yeah. So you know you've got to put a combination of investments together, which uh, you know very much align to your, your your suitability in terms of the risk that you want to take for the sort of return that you want you want to get. The second thing is that you want transparency. So you want to be able to understand what's going on in the funds, and you want to. Uh, be able to get that transparency from the managers themselves. And the third thing is, you know, value for money, and that's what you want to see. So, you know, when you're looking at multi-asset funds, I think there is perhaps a good rule of thumb is to think about the suitability, think about the transparency, and think about value for money. Brilliant. John, thank you ever so much for your time. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, if you have any suggestions for future topics, then do get in touch and email us on podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will see you all next week thanks a lot before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not and don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it it's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.